You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.12, Lost and Found. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan. And I recently learned that in the Double Zeta novels, Sayugusa lives. Do what you will with that information. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and it was kind of a struggle to work this week, uh, but somehow we got it done. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 416 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Riley M., Studio Ozkai, Levi P., and Duncan H. The podcast would not be possible without your support. We have a few more thank yous this week as well. Thank you, Mark, for the books, and Rose for the stickers and the Hello Kitty Gundam mashup keychains. I got the gun canyon. <laughs> uh, and finally, thank you to Eagerly Awaiting IBO for supporting us on Kofi. We really appreciate it. Remember, dear listeners, links to all of the different ways to support us and keep us ad-free are listed on our website at GundamPodcast.com support. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 14, The Lost Colony Part 1, or Maboroshi no Koroni, Zen. This week, we researched step pyramids and sweetwater-type colonies. But first... Let's tune our radios to As the Colony Spins on Radio Free Shangri-La. Artificial dawn washes over Shangri-La's uptown district, bathing the hills and valleys in golden bronze light. Dew glistens on the grass, and in the sumptuous gardens of the elite, The flowers rise to greet the sun, grateful to enjoy another day of perpetual springtime, thanks to the benevolence of the Colony Public Corporation. In the distance, a rooster crows, lending the scene an air of idyllic pastoral charm. And inside one mansion... Yes, I'll hold. Oh, Mistress Bethany! Not now, Guildenstern. Can't you see that I'm on the phone? Oh, hello again. Yes, thank you. I was hoping you could send someone out to kill a rooster. Yes, I'm aware that it lends the scene an air of idyllic pastoral charm. It's just that I'd like to be able to sleep in, so... Oh, you're not that kind of exterminator. Well, do you know anyone who would... Hello? Hello? Ugh! Peasants! 
They'd never dare to treat me like this if the Titans were still around. But, Mistress Bethany, I thought you hated the evil Titans on account of their many crimes against humanity. Well, I mean, yes, obviously. I, I, I still do. I, it's, it's just that they, that I never felt personally, uh, uh, you know, um, sometimes, uh, anyway, what did you want to tell me before? Oh, Mistress Bethany, I've just received the most wonderful letter. Your sister has been discharged from the Federation Science Corps. Mistress Alice is coming home. Gildenstern, you credulous buffoon. This must be some sort of cruel practical joke. You know very well that my sister is on a mission to explore the deepest reaches of space. And even if she could return, she'd never want to. Not after the dreadful things our parents said to her. But, Mistress Bethany, just look at the signature. Enough, Gildenstern. I'm in no mood for your youthful japery. Not after that absolute disaster of a masquerade. I swear you've been completely unmanageable ever since you manhandled that party-crashing private detective. <laughs> well. Now, what else was in the mail? Ooh, is there a ribbon on that one? Is that for me? Why, yes, and glitter as well. This is a letter from that well-mannered young gentleman who was so taken with you at the masquerade. Ugh. But, Mistress Bethany, the envelope is embossed, and the letter has gold filigree. Ugh. I can't believe that I threw a party for every eligible bachelor in the sector, and the only one of them who paid any attention to me all night was that slimy little twerp from... Mistress Bethany, your manners. What would your sister say if she heard you speaking like that? Oh, she'd probably say, Bethy, you'll never find a man to marry you with that attitude. And then I'd say, but Alice, I don't want to marry him. I don't care if he's rich. And then she'd say, He's not just rich, Bethy. He's the sole heir to the biggest toilet company fortune in the Earth sphere. And then I'd say, The sole heir? And then she'd say, That's right, he's going to get the whole thing in toto. She was always doing that, you know, using dead languages just to rub in how much smarter she was. See, Gildenstern, we've had the whole argument and I still don't want to marry him or mind my manners. Now, was there any other mail for me? Well, uh, there was this letter from uh, Margarita. Ooh, gimme, gimme! Uh, dear Bethany, <laughs> hope this finds you well <laughs> in these times. <laughs> oh, she joined a cult! Oh, how dreadful. No, no, no. She says they're one of those back-to-nature, simplify-your-life cults. This could be really good for her. The door. Uh, that must be your sister arriving. What did I tell you about japery, Gildenstern? I'm sure it's just another gang of grubby urchins trying to sell us headlight fluid or... Hello, Bethany. Hector. Oh, I'm going to faint. And now the recap for The Lost Colony Part 1. Mm -hmm. 
not only are the Lavien Rose and the Argama running low on food and other supplies, but they've also found themselves smack in the middle of an asteroid field they had hoped to avoid. This region of space was home to the first Sweetwater-type colonies, but is long abandoned now. As the bridge crew analyze the asteroid field, someone makes radio contact. The voice on the radio declares that they represent the Light Tribe of Moon Moon Colony and have been waiting for these outsiders. The voice goes on to demand they dock at Moon Moon, promising that if they join forces, the Light Tribe can lead them to a better way. Emery contacts the Lavian Rose for any information about the colony, but all that's known is that they keep themselves totally independent. As long as his ship can be resupplied, Bright is willing to take some risk and orders that the Argama dock at Moon Moon Colony. As soon as the ship docks and the colony's hangar door shuts, soldiers and guards stream into the room. Their long robes, masked faces, spears and sandals, making the Argama crew wonder if they've somehow gone back in time. One of these soldiers, on seeing the mobile suits, declares them to be giants that Lady Sarasa predicted. When they announce their intention to destroy the giants with bombs, El tells Judo they should take the double Zeta apart. Better us than strangers, she says, and Judo understands. If they unform the double Zeta, the Light Tribe may believe that it is damaged and unusable. Further selling the ruse, El and Astonaji pretend to weep over the destruction of their god. Bright and Emery are escorted to go meet with the Light Tribe's prophet, but most of the crew are commanded by the guards to stay aboard the ship. Judo is kidnapped. Once inside the colony, the Argama's representatives are shocked to find stone surfaces and flaming torches mounted on the walls. Few buildings are visible in the dense forests, and those that are are overgrown, covered in vining plants. They are led to a large step pyramid, and once inside, find that the Endra beat them there. Chiara and Goten, accompanied by Bicha and Mondo, are already there, and have made a show of swearing oaths to the Light Tribe's god, Katil. While Goten negotiates with a Light Tribe official, Chiara changes into local clothes and goes for a walk, tailed by Bicha and Mondo. They lose her almost immediately, distracted by the sights of the city and the sudden appearance of Judo in the back of a horse-drawn cart. When Judo spots Chiara, he tells his kidnappers who she is, and they decide to grab her, too. Bicha races back to the palace to tell Goten what has happened, while Mondo follows the cart on foot. A young woman named Rasara takes Judo and Chiara to a safe house, and Mondo clings to vines on the building's facade, just below the open window. Rasara is a member of the local rebel group, who fear that the Prophet's plan to spread the Light Tribe's message of peace will only destroy the peace they've managed to preserve on Moon Moon. Meanwhile, Bright and Emery have been offered the same deal as the crew of the Endra. But when Bright is resistant to swearing the oath, the Light Tribe official tells them they will take the Argama and use it to spread their teachings. From behind a curtain, the prophet speaks and explains that she wishes they didn't have to treat the outsiders this way, but they are not yet sure which of the two ships, the Endra or the Argama, holds the foretold messiah. And at the same time, Goten believes that Kiara's kidnapping is a sign that the Light Tribe have allied themselves with Ayug. He rushes back to the Endra to muster soldiers, bring out their mobile suits, and retrieve Lina to use as a hostage. 
He orders her tied to one of the Gazadis, and across the colony, Judo hears Lena's cries for help. Bicha, eager to earn the trust of his new Axis comrades and make a name for himself, tries to pilot the Arjarja into battle. Deandra's forces menace the city and capture the palace. Many of the locals stand around awestruck or prostrate themselves on the ground, convinced that one of the mobile suits is the god Katil. Judo gets a cart to take him and Kiara back into town. He convinces Kiara to release his sister, and when Bicha crashes the Arjarja nearby, he pretends he was bringing it for Kiara. Aboard the Argama, Rue has grown concerned that they've had no message from the captain, so she, El, and Enel launch in the core fighters that make up the Double Zeta. They harry the Axis mobile suits until Judo manages to flag them down with a smoke bomb. Rue brings him a core fighter, they switch places, and he and his friends form the Double Zeta. Unfortunately, once Kiara spots the rival mobile suit, she completely forgets her promise to free Lena. The rest of the Gaza team flee back to the Yendra, taking Lena with them, and Kiara grabs hold of Judo, preventing him from chasing them. He stabs a beam saber into the back of the Arjarja and realizes it's a fatal blow. In the depths of her battle madness, Kiara ignores him when he calls out for her to eject until their mutual new type abilities allow him to get through to her. She ejects right as the Arjarja explodes. Afterwards, everyone gathers in the palace once more. The Light Tribe official declares that Judo must be the promised messiah. When the prophet asks Judo for a favor, he strides up to the curtain, pulling it aside to reveal who the prophet is. She looks just like Rasara, but she is Sarasa Moon prophet and leader of the Light Tribe. What connection she has to the rebel girl Rasara, and what she will ask of Judo, we are left to wonder until next week. Unlike most episodes of Gundam, this one isn't about the characters. Which is not entirely true, um, but it does get at something that I noticed about this episode, which distinguishes it from most of the rest of the episodes of Gundam that we've talked about so far, which is that the uh, the plot of this episode, the, the storyline, is much more prominent and more important than the individual bits of characterization that we get. It is a very strong plot that is driving all of the action here, whereas in a lot of episodes, the plot is really sort of background. It's just there to set up the character interactions. Of course, there are a lot of things about this episode that make it stand out from every other episode of Gundam we've talked about so far. It is justifiably famous or infamous within the Gundam fan community, but let's start with that question of characters versus plot. Typically when we sit down to do these talkbacks, I find myself organizing my notes by character you know, individual characters sort of trajectory or conflict that they experience throughout the episode uh, and how that's significant to the story. This week, my notes really don't fit that pattern. There are little bits and pieces about a whole bunch of different characters, but there's no strong individual or contrasting character arcs to deal with. It's much more about events that happen <laughs> and the causal relationship between the events throughout the episode. 
Part of what is so interesting about this storyline is actually how common it is. Not in Gundam, but in sort of classic sci-fi generally, this uh, story setup of two opposing spaceships that both encounter an independent and often uncontacted third nation. Uh, they make contact, they send representatives to meet with the local authorities. Uh, it turns out that there's a conflict within the colony or the whoever it is that they've met, there's a conflict there. Um, usually the good guys at first side with the quote unquote legitimate authority, but then they realize that the other faction, the rebel faction is more in tune with their own values and they switch sides. And we do this whole little like bit of court intrigue with the two different opposing sides having to meet and mingle in a sort of diplomatic context. This happens all the time. It's the sort of thing that wouldn't be out of place in Star Trek or the Star Wars expanded universe. But one thing that is distinct about it in Double Zeta, and that I thought was an interesting choice, is that it's not that nobody knows they're there, right? They're not completely forgotten or so completely isolated that no one has any idea they exist. Levy and Rose has records of a colony here. They know it's a colony that holds itself completely independent of everyone else. And it seems like they don't know anything about it, like what the culture there is like. No one goes to Moon Moon. Except they do seem very confident that they can get resupplied there. True. But they're shocked to discover what the colony is actually like. Right. And they freely admit it's in a part of space that people generally avoid. It's in an area that is so inhospitable <laughs> and so lacking in anything that anyone needs that it's left alone. Basically an industrial junkyard. This is where the you know first colonies, the first Sweetwater type colonies were built. And then the area was abandoned because it's all like floating refuse. It's dangerous and useless. Kind of like where the kids grew up in Shangri-La. Uh, the reason this storyline that I was just describing comes up so often in classic sci-fi is because it reflects real history. A lot of sci-fi is really just stories taken out of the maritime colonial imperial period of the early modern and modern era and then sort of imported into a space context where space stands in for the oceans and, and the various planets are all of the islands and land masses on Earth. And this is a thing that happened all of the time. This is how the empires built their strength when they encountered independent nations, independent states, what they would do is they would make diplomatic contact. They would support one faction or another in the internal strife in order to build their influence and eventually take over. This is the story of how the British Empire ultimately took over India. If you remember our history of the city of Dakar, this is how the French Empire operated in that region. And in what will be very relevant for this episode, it is how the uh, Spanish conquistador Cortes conquered the Aztec Empire. But those are just the most prominent examples that come to my mind immediately. This happened countless times all over the world. I appreciate how neatly the scenario fits in to what we have described as the common theme of miscommunication and misunderstanding throughout Double Zeta, I just love how both the Endra and the Argama think that the Light Tribe is selling them out to the other, when in truth, the Light Tribe does not know or care about their conflict at all. It doesn't know what sides they represent. They didn't even really know that they were fighting each other until these different sides told them that. Uh, they have their own 
things going on. They have their own goals, their own aims, and they're not particularly interested in the conflict outside, except as it represents what they see as the like violence polluting the rest of space. I'm really curious how much the Light Tribe does know about them. They must have some kind of sensors, or maybe they just have people with keen eyesight looking out the windows, because they did uh, notice the arrival of these ships. They could tell that the Livia and Rose and the Argama were two separate ships, and somehow their prophecy anticipated the arrival of like teenagers piloting mobile suits. Right. Because they do say that it's the pilots, it's Judo that the prophet wants to see. So they must know something about the outside world. Well, and they know mobile suits are dangerous, even though they don't appear to have any mobile suits of their own. But to circle back very briefly, the other thing that, that I really enjoy about the miscommunication is that like so many of the misunderstandings in Double Zeta, it involves somebody uh, sort of centering their own importance <laughs> and the importance of what they are doing and who they are. And that, oh, well, obviously my thing is so important that everybody <laughs> knows about it and cares about it. And it's all, it's the center of everything. <laughs> so there is a, a misunderstanding later on that doesn't fit that pattern. When uh, Judo is talking to Kiara and he's like, I know the captain of the Endra is like a terrible person, but surely you could convince him. Because Judo still thinks Mashima is in charge mm -hmm. of the Endra. He is imputing far better motives to Kiara than she deserves. Yeah, she continues to be a really intense cyber new type parody in this episode with the vacillating between like glee and childishness the memory issues, and then on the other side, the intensity, the sweating, the violence. Oh, see, seeing Kiara in this episode, I actually felt like this is a point where they're starting to turn the corner from pure farce, pure parody into something more tragic. Here we start to see that Kiara really does have like two entirely distinct personalities, different sets of memories. The when she's in the mobile suit, this like other Kiara takes over uh, and she loses track of her priorities. She loses track of who she is. And the ultimate results of that is that this union of brief understanding between her and Judo, where they were on the same page and they both wanted to get Lena back, has evaporated. They've lost the opportunity. And that's really tragic when you think about it. And she seems so sad at the end, so disappointed in herself. When she promised to get Lena back, I believe she legitimately wanted to do something good. Yeah. And there at the end, when she's been captured, I think that feeling has returned. And she's full of regret that she wasn't able to do it. The other communication moment that struck me in this episode was when Judo has dealt the killing blow to the Arjarja. First, he calls out to her verbally, telling her she needs to eject because the mobile suit is fatally damaged. And she's still, you know, in the depths of that fighting intensity and, aha, this, this little scratch? No way. And then mentally, with whatever new type ability he has or connection that they have, he tells her essentially exactly the same thing but through this other avenue of communication, and that's what gets through to her. Maybe these new type abilities that people have are really a way to have true communication, communication without misunderstanding. And in a show so full of misunderstandings, the significance of that, where the, the message actually gets through and is understood, I don't think we should underestimate how important that is. 
Oh, I think it's hugely important. Did it sound like I don't? No. <laughs> um, I, was, I was saying that for emphasis. Um, I mean, it's a true heart to heart, right? It's his feelings speaking directly to her feelings rather than an attempt to convey meaning through words that the other person listens to and then processes and filters and right. until they finally get at some interpretation of what you've said. And this connection is expressed to us in like transparent judo face appearing over Kiara, talking to her. But there's no reason to think that that's actually the experience that she's having. That's just how the TV show chooses to depict it. But it's a deeper connection, like you said, heart to heart. When I try to imagine what new types experience when they communicate this way, which is a thing I've done, <laughs> trying to imagine what that would be like, I imagine... What if when I had a thought or a feeling directed at someone, it just sprang up internal to them? They just felt it organically. I didn't have to try to communicate it. It would just be there. You know, what if when someone, you know, tried to convey to me positive or negative feelings, right? Anger or love. Uh, I just felt it rather than having to look and hear and perceive and think about and process mm -hmm. and interpret all of those signals. What it, Instead of having to interpret another person, which is what we do all the time when we communicate, I just knew. And the potential of that kind of communication for real understanding is huge. But at the same time, we also have to remember uh, prior episodes of Gundam. We have to remember that time when Camille and Haman almost understood each other and how Haman recoiled from that interaction. That sort of understanding between people uh, would make them very vulnerable to each other. And Haman is certainly not the sort of person to want to be vulnerable to anyone, especially not an enemy. <laughs> there's a whole storyline in the first volume of Kino's journey about this, where there's like a place where they've made everybody telepathic and it ruins their society. Nobody can stand <laughs> to be around each other anymore because with like perfect telepathy, nobody can like filter their thoughts or feelings from each other. And so there's a lot of stuff, you know, we think and feel a lot of things that are hurtful or unfair, and then we don't say them. We, mm -hmm. we filter that and, you know, process it and, and we don't share everything because not everything should be <laughs> shared in that way. Uh, <laughs> And that with perfect telepathy, this whole society of people can't do that anymore and so basically can't stand to be around each other. It's not exactly the same, but earlier in the episode when the uh, people from Moon Moon insist that the Double Zeta be destroyed because it's too dangerous and so the people on the Argama disassemble it, this is another one of those uh, misunderstandings. Although in this case, it's really only one way because the people on the Argama are actively taking advantage of the communication gap in order to uh, deceive the people from Moon Moon. There's an interesting linguistic thing here where what the people from the Argama, the verb they use for taking the double Zeta apart is barasu, which means to take something apart into pieces, but it also can mean to kill something. Mm. So they're using a, a ambiguous verb. <laughs> Patrons should listen to the bonus episode I did about wordplay last month. 
uh, the bit of everybody on the Argama pretending to oh cry that the, kills me. It's so good. That little game of telephone they all engage in uh, is hysterical. like a classic double Zeta humor moment. It's it, one of the best ones they've done so far, I would say. This is also an episode that really gives Elle a chance to show off a little bit, even though she's not as central to what's happening. Uh, she is the one who's like, you know, examine that asteroid there. She's the one who comes up with the plan to kill the double Zeta. Uh, just really top of her game here. Elle is great, and Rue is mostly in the way. She's physically in the way in that first scene uh, on the bridge when Emery pushes past her. But this is also a good encapsulation of where Rue is in the story and the crew at this point. She's still kind of an outsider. She's not really part of the adult command team. She's not really part of the youth pilot crew. And she's still trying to find her place. And unfortunately, right now, her place is mostly being in the way of other people. Yeah, they they don't let her go along with the group that's going into Moon Moon. She's uh, not allowed to go with them. She is isolated. She is the one who brings Judo the core fighter so he can form the double Zeta though. But then she's the one who like hops out and is like, it's all yours now. You do the thing. I also wondered, <laughs> since you mentioned uh, her getting shoulder checked by Emery, um, whether that isn't Emery trying to put her in her place for Rue's uh, sort of snarky, Captain Bright, you're late. Mm. This one, can a captain be late to his own bridge? <laughs> Are you saying that a captain like a wizard is never late or early? He arrives precisely when he means to? Yeah, basically. I mean, Bright clearly <laughs> Bright clearly isn't going to tell Rue off about it. But no, that felt, and Bright is a little embarrassed. But it felt a bit presumptuous to me for Rue to be like, Captain, you're late, and like <laughs> tell him off. I don't know. And then uh, <laughs> Emery uh, shoulder checking her. I, I did wonder. Could very well be. Emery also just seems sort of like... Um, possessive of and defensive of Bright for some reason. <laughs> well, and, and maybe also trying to emphasize you might be here trying to act important, but I'm the one Bright has actually requested help from. Right. I don't know if Emery is actually the commanding officer of the Livy and Rose. She seems to be. So yeah, this, is, this might be a bit of a, a conscious putting in the place. Also, I know they, for the purposes of subtitles, have rendered it Emery, but I assume it's meant to be Emily. Yeah, probably. Because <laughs> in Japanese, Emily would become Emery. What did you think about the uh, little scene of Emery and Bright together? Ugh, ugh, ugh. I mean, ugh. Bright, <laughs> come on, man. But then again, I haven't liked Bright all that much since first Gundam. So, you know, shrug. You would agree that he's been better in double Zeta than he was in Zeta. Yes. However, uh... Given a lot of the things that I talked about recently about Japan's workplace culture, the first thing it made me think of is, gee, I wonder how prevalent extramarital relationships are in Japan and particularly among coworkers. Because if you think about people working crazy hours six days a week, you see your coworkers more often than you see your family. And the added obligatory socialization after work, like everybody has to go out drinking together, kind of. There's a lot of social pressure to do that. I mean, way more so than the white base. The Argama has felt since the beginning of Zeta like uh, a metaphor for the Japanese workplace. 
there's a million ways that this comes up down to like Rekawa going around and serving tea at the meetings in the way that women in Japanese offices are expected to do or certainly were expected to do and to a certain degree still are. And so in that extended metaphor, Bright then becomes the married salaryman. He has a couple of kids. Uh, he doesn't see them very often. Now, Bright hasn't been home in years versus the real world salary man who goes home but never sees his kids. Right. If you get home at midnight every night and your kids are asleep and you maybe see them over breakfast, maybe. And the one day a week you're home, you're mostly resting and trying to recover <laughs> from the week and prepare for the new one. Uh, you know, you are arguably more present, but are you? <laughs> yeah. A fun game when you're watching these Gundam shows is to ask yourself, which characters in this are supposed to be Tomino? At this point, do you think Tomino is bright? Yes. He's starting to feel, he's like, oh no, I'm one of the adults. I'm like a middle manager. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> By this point in his life, Tomino definitely has two kids and he is notorious for being a workaholic. So I would not be surprised at all if Tomino was the kind of person who showed up before dawn in the office, worked all day, and got home after his kids had gone to bed. And, you know, as we've touched on previously, there were a lot more women in the workforce, but generally speaking, any women in the workforce were more likely to be young and unmarried. A lot of women left the workforce when they married or had kids. Especially in 85 and 86, after that equal employment law went into force, lots of new uh, women joining the workforce straight out of graduating college, not very many older than that. Right. I mean, not that there weren't older women who were office workers, but it, as a percentage, right. like it wasn't representative of ages in the population. Right. I mean, what I mean is that there would have been, you know, a handful of older women office workers mm -hmm. who had been there for a while. Mm -hmm. But then in 85 and 86, when Zeta and Double Zeta were getting made, there would have been just a, a wave, right. a huge number of uh, young unmarried women joining the workforce. Now, at the very least, Bright is not harassing Emery. Uh, she seems just as intrigued by this possibility, by this flirtation as Bright does. She seems a little more intrigued to my eye. Yeah, there are a few little moments in the animation that stood out to me. At one point when they're still sort of like almost hugging because they've crashed into each other in the hall, uh, Bright has a bunch of beads of sweat on his face and a little smile. <laughs> and then once they get to the bridge, they both sort of straighten up but the expression on Emery's face seems to indicate this is not something that flusters her. She's not actually as embarrassed as she might have seemed. She is uh, purely pleased. <laughs> I'm very confident that this uh, supposed accident in the hallway was no accident whatsoever. I think that Emery contrived that little encounter. What does she see in Bright? That's what I want to know. <laughs> He is a hero of the war, and she has not known him very long. <laughs> Look, Mirai deserves better. Yeah, absolutely. Especially after her big speech about, I'm trying to keep the memory of Bright alive for my kids. <laughs> if Mirai really does have new type powers that allow her to know what Bright is thinking and feeling at any given moment, uh... he's going to be in a lot of trouble. It doesn't seem to work at that far a remove. Maybe Mirai is very powerful. Another interesting thing about that bridge scene while we're on it, no one is broken up about Bicha and Mondo. Yeah, they don't even mention it. Do you think it's because they figured out what Bicha and Mondo must have done? Or 
I assume so. There's like I think, no indication, I think they though. Have to, at that point, with Beach and Mondo gone, I think they have to have assumed that Beach and Mondo were the collaborators and are now off collaborating. As I mentioned last week, there are times when Double Zeta is not very good storytelling. And I don't think you need to lay everything out explicitly all the time. But there are gaps in this story that just feel inorganic. Especially since it's clear that not very much time has passed between the prior episode and this one. There are things that you can allude to in a subtle way without necessarily, you know, explaining everything A, B, C, D. Uh, But to not mention it at all feels like bad writing to me. This episode does allude to Bicha and Mondo and the reception they got on the Endra when Bicha talks about you know, trying to get gotten to make him a official soldier, uh, his desire to make a name for himself. That is such a turn though, right? Because he didn't have any interest in being a full soldier on the Argama. So why does he want to be a full soldier on the Endra? Is it just that he thinks that Axis is going to win? That felt like such a turn to me. Uh, and in many ways made him even less sympathetic to me than he was before. He's really digging himself a hole here. They definitely were unhappy with their position on the Argama, in part because of their low status and the crummy jobs they were being given and being sort of subordinated to judo. Their position on the Endra is probably worse. Certainly it is uh, much harder for them to get off the Endra and go and do something else. So maybe it's just making the best of a bad situation. I was reading an interview recently with one of the main writers for a much later Gundam series. So the specifics of the interview aren't particularly relevant to this discussion, but one thing this writer did mention was the uh, huge gap in communication between the different writers. Mm. And he gave the specific example of, um, in this future series, there is a very large and very important spaceship, and at one point it crashes. Uh, And... The person who wrote the previous episode after it was written was like, oh, by the way, I crashed that spaceship. (gasps) (laughs) I thought it would be more interesting that way. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So who knows what is being communicated between Endo and Suzuki? So there's okay. I would have assumed there would be more centralized story planning that like the main narrative beats would all be laid out in advance by a central person or team. And then that the individual writers would be given like, okay, these narrative beats are going to happen in this episode, fill in the rest of it. And to some degree, that is probably true. But how much it's true varies probably enormously across different series and uh, even within a series at different times in the production. The dysfunction of the teams that put Gundam together is almost as legendary as Gundam itself. Returning to the Endra very briefly, you mentioned uh, Bicha and Mondo's position there, and it's a tiny throwaway thing, but I love how every single official or, or person in any sort of position of power who encounters Gotten realizes that he is the person to work with. <laughs> yes. Every yes. single one is like, oh, there's the leader and there's the person I actually want to talk to. Great. All right. You and I can do business. This is a great thing in this episode because the person who makes that realization with Gotten is Moon Moon's Gotten. It's not the priestess behind the curtain. It's her like speaker. It's her second in command who actually is in charge. Right. 
So earlier you mentioned that you thought that uh, not addressing the Argama's feelings about Bicha and Mondo's defection was bad writing. And I need to stand up for the honor of Moon Moon and Suzuki, who wrote both this episode and the next one, uh, The Lost Colony Part 2. Because I think this episode is really well put together. I think it's a well-written episode. I think it's a well-directed episode. I think the pacing is surprisingly good for an episode of Gundam, because usually the pacing in these shows is uh, present. <laughs> you have to draw a distinction, though, between the writing of an individual episode and of a series as a whole. I, I think it's a great episode. I don't have any issues with the episode as a self-contained separate entity. Oh, good. My issue with them not covering events of a previous episode, though, my issue is frequently a, a lack of continuity or like clear reactions and consequences to character actions of previous episodes, right? Mm-hmm. And that comes down to, like we were talking about before, communication between writing teams and that I was under this misapprehension that there is some kind of central plan <laughs> and communication happening that simply isn't there. You know, I can think it's a great episode and I can think that one of the weaknesses of this series is having sort of clear, long-term emotional through lines <laughs> for these characters. That is a really good thing to have in mind right now. <laughs> Because up until now, every episode has alternated writers. But as I mentioned a second ago, uh, this episode and the next one are a two-parter. We actually considered doing the two episodes of the Lost Colony arc as a single episode of the podcast. I'm glad we didn't, though, because there is so much to talk about with each of these episodes. Um, but anyway, both were written by the same writer, so it's going to be one coherent arc overall. And that's going to start happening more going forward. There are going to be more runs of episodes written by a single writer. So we'll be able to see what uh, a single writer working on their own set of episodes can do in terms of continuity. And we'll see if that improves it at all. Uh, I have some questions <laughs> based on the visual design of the colony. We are treated to massive stone facades with vines creeping over them. Now, we've seen the interiors of other colonies. They don't do big stone facades. That's not the look. We've certainly seen colony designs in previous Gundam shows uh, that harken back to, you know, quote unquote, old fashioned architecture that try to look like, you know, an Alpine Swiss village or... <laughs> sort of a neoclassical mansion or, you know, whatever. But this sort of, like, large, heavy stone facade is even older and strikes me as something that the people of Moon Moon would have needed to do after the fact, right? Something that was probably not part of the colony's original construction. It was something <laughs> that these people decided to put time and effort into creating Whoa. because it was part of the, like, look they wanted for their, uh, as Judo put it, back to nature <laughs> lives. As you sort of suggested earlier, things like the Switzerland in space or the Texas in space, uh, the Universal Century clearly has the technology and the, the know-how to be able to replicate any particular Earth-side environment that you like in space. 
they have that ability, and so it's just a matter of will. And so I think the design choices made here are both a very conscious decision by the creative team in order to help drive home the message of these episodes, and also we're meant to see it as a conscious decision by the people of Moon Moon to adopt a particular lifestyle. This is a choice that maybe not these particular people, but their ancestors did make at some point. They decided to build these buildings in this style, and they decided on this back-to-nature lifestyle. Well, and just because they don't use electricity doesn't mean that they have to uh, sort of let nature reclaim the city, right? And yet we've seen that's exactly what they've done. Most of the buildings have been engulfed by vegetation. Even the buildings they still use are covered. Yeah, it resembles the sort of monumental architecture of ancient temples that we see in South America or South Asia. The step pyramid shape. Right, including being completely overgrown by the jungle. But that's the way things are now because they've been abandoned for centuries. Right, that's that's uninhabited places. And so it it's odd to have it still so clearly like inhabited by a vibrant, alive society, and yet uh, they are letting nature overtake it. Presumably, Moon Moon is basing their idea of how their society should look on contemporary or near-contemporary images of what these older societies looked like, which are not accurate to what they would have looked like at the time. You know, this is the same problem that we have with, like, Roman statuary, because we see (laughs) these stark white marble statues, and we think that's what Roman statues looked like. We think that's what Roman civilization looked like. It was all monochrome and grand and... uh, As opposed to garishly colored and covered in graffiti. (laughs) Which is what it actually was. (laughs) Right. The statues were painted. They had gemstones in their eyes. And swinging back to the idea that this is their created environment... um, Seems highly unlikely that a step pyramid was part of the original design. (laughs) Uh, Their fear of cars makes me wonder how exactly they built the step pyramid uh, without any machinery. They either did it like the original builders of these uh, structures did, or it was built before they gave up the, the sort of modern tools that would make that easier. That is my assumption. And actually, I'm not entirely certain that that pyramid is made out of stone. Mm. Given its construction, given the fact that it seems to be hollow instead of uh, like most step pyramids are, are solid construction, but with a building at the top, uh, this one is hollow. There's a chamber within. There's all sorts of arched doorways. And it might be metal or some other space age material. I assume it was constructed with techniques and technology that they have since abandoned. But it is really important and really interesting that they know what a car is. And they are haven't... terrified of it. Well, it's driving right at them. I'd be terrified too. Right, but the way the line is given feels much more like some people saying like, ah, it's Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, ah, I mean, it's a car. They haven't forgotten what cars are. They know what technology is, but they haven't seen it. Yet another example of the strangeness of, well, to me, of their built environment. At the very end of the episode, we zoom out and we are again treated to, you know, a handful of buildings mostly engulfed by jungle. We can see the step pyramid. Uh, We also can see a clearing with a sort of hinge Mm -hmm. in it. It's not exactly Stonehenge. It appears to be just vertical stones with no horizontal, like lintel style stones over the top of any of them. Uh, 
But they are mixing their ancient civilizations somewhat here. I don't know if there were any similar stone circles in Mesoamerica. Yeah, I'm not sure. I would guess not. I mean, I think the reference to Stonehenge is the obvious one. It's a very syncretic society. It's a society that is taking a bunch of ideas and and looks from different places and different time periods uh, and sort of mixing them together, divorcing them of their original meaning and creating a new one. I don't know if you noticed this, but when we finally see the prophetess uh, Sarasa at the end there and they do the pan that shows sort of her slowly revealed, she's wearing a cross pendant, like a Christian cross with a moon symbol, a crescent moon across it. There's no indication that the light tribe practices anything resembling Christianity or Islam, which are the two religions most closely associated with the cross and the the crescent and the crescent moon. Yeah. So lots of different symbols and ideas all being mixed together to create this new thing. I mentioned the parallel to Cortez's arrival in the Aztec Empire and his subsequent conquest thereof, and I think those are pretty strong here. The architecture, as we mentioned, suggests the Mesoamerican pyramid temple style. Uh, Also, the specific developments in this episode parallel some of the ones that happened during Cortez's conquest of the Aztecs, specifically upon arrival. There is some debate about this, but at least in the histories that were written after the fact, when Cortez arrived, he was believed to be a messiah or one of the Aztec gods returning to Earth. He was then brought to meet the leader of the Aztec society, Montezuma, and he and his armed guards with their superior weapons then took Montezuma hostage, just as happens in this episode. There's also, I don't know if you noticed this, but when he and Kiara first meet with the prophet and her representative, they have like a a wood and iron chest presumably carrying gifts that they've brought for her yeah, I didn't next notice to them, that. which looks like something that came right out of the Age of Sail. It's so antiquated. So Rasara and Sarasa are some sisters who look very much alike. We'll have to wait for the next episode to find out. <laughs> I don't know if it's two women who look very much alike, probably sisters or twins even, uh, or... One person exhibiting two, like, modes? <laughs> that would be extremely Gundam. Yes, it would be extremely Gundam to have one person be both the leader of the established government and the leader of the rebels at the same time. Especially if it were a woman who showed two distinct personalities and appeared to switch between them without being aware of the other one's existence. I feel like that's happened a couple of times. Before we go, I just want to point out one more thing, which is that Lena is definitely wearing a Hitler Youth uniform. It's been zeoned up a little bit, but it is unmistakably a Hitler Youth uniform. Yeah, I uh, we we got some theories in our Discord about where these clothes that Lena is wearing are coming from. Uh, among our favorites were that there is simply a couturier on hand on staff of the Endra. Uh, I don't remember who said that, but it was very funny. <laughs> All good theories. We don't know, but it's weird. And now the research on Sweetwater-type colonies and step pyramids. During the opening scenes of this episode, Emery reports that they are entering a shoal zone full of debris left over from the construction of what she calls 
the first sweetwater-type colonies. This line has caused a lot of confusion among Gundam fans over the years, especially since it's really the only context we get explaining what Moon Moon is and why it's here. So I would like to take a moment to clarify just what Emery's talking about here. First, what's a shoal zone? And second, what is a Sweetwater-type colony? And perhaps answering those questions will make the sudden appearance of this strange and heretofore unknown colony a little less bizarre. I'd also like to thank the people of the MSB Discord, and in particular, Church and Ex Machina 00, who helped me figure out the answer to the latter question. First, the word used in the English translation, shoal, is a nautical, oceanographic, or geomorphological term referring to a submerged strip of land that is just beneath the surface of the water. They're sometimes called sandbars or gravel bars, depending on what they're made of. The term can also be used informally to describe areas cluttered with underwater rocks. Basically, these are regions where a navigable section of water is made hazardous by bits of submerged land that threaten to wreck unwary ships. When multiple shoals occur close together, the area can be called a shoal complex, or, less commonly, a shoal zone. However, the Japanese word being used here is anshou, which by dictionary definition is closer in meaning to the English word reef. While the two English words are somewhat similar and do have some overlap in meaning, it's not the most literal translation. That being said, the point here is to express that this is an area of space filled with navigational hazards. Calling it a reef might feel awkward because, you know, to me at least, the word reef just feels very grounded in the oceanic context, whereas shoal is maybe a little less so. In this case, the shoal zone is not a naturally occurring astronautical navigation hazard, but one that is left over from long-abandoned human activity. And that brings us to the second question, what is a Sweetwater-type colony, and why did they build a bunch of them here? This statement from Emery is made a bit more confusing by the fact that in just a couple of years, there is going to be another colony called Sweetwater introduced into the Universal Century lore. That colony is going to be of a distinctive type, and so a reasonable Gundam fan watching this episode might think that this reference to a Sweetwater-type colony was meant to be a reference to that Sweetwater-type colony but the timing doesn't fit. Bright tells us that this shoal zone dates back to when the colonies were first developed, but we definitely know that the other Sweetwater is more recent than that. And don't worry, no spoilers, that is the most I'm going to say about this mysterious future Sweetwater. To make matters even worse, there's also a third reference to a Sweetwater colony, although this last one is even more obscure than the other two. According to Gundam expert Mark Simmons, the Zeta Gundam novels, which were written contemporaneously with the show, mention an Ayug base at a colony called Sweetwater. So what's going on? Here's what's going on. As we know, the space colonies that we know and love, like Green Oasis, Texas, and Shangri-La, they were all constructed in space using raw materials from asteroids captured and brought into Earth orbit. That's where asteroid fortresses like Luna 2, Solomon, and Abawaku came from originally. The first ones were constructed prior to UC-1, 
and the universal century officially began after Shangri-La, the first such colony, was completed and populated to a certain amount. While there are some design variations from colony to colony, some are bigger, some are smaller, these colonies are all examples of O'Neill cylinders, a real-world space colony design originally proposed by Gerard O'Neill in his 1976 book The High Frontier. We've talked a bunch about O'Neill cylinder colonies. You can refer to our prior episodes for more information about them. However, the large O'Neill cylinders were not the first colonies built in space. In addition to dragging in resource asteroids, the corporations building the colonies also constructed the space equivalent of temporary construction sheds. Smaller, simpler colonies that would house the workers building the larger colonies. These colonies, sometimes called Island One-type colonies, are not just scaled-down versions of O'Neill cylinders. They actually take their design from another real-world space colony model, the Bernal Sphere, described by Irish scientist John Desmond Bernal in his 1929 book The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Interestingly, besides talking about building colonies in space, Bernal's book also contains meditations on the potential uses of technology to enhance the human body or brain, and the radical changes to personhood and society that might result from such changes. And, hmm, hmm, a brief biographical note while we're here. Besides a distinguished career as a scientist, Bernal was also a scientific advisor to the British Army during World War II, and he assisted in the planning of the D-Day landings. He landed himself on the day after the invasion began. He was also a full-throated and unapologetic communist and Soviet sympathizer, a friend of Pablo Picasso, and appears to have been polyamorous. So if you've heard people joking about fully automated luxury space communism, Bernal may be the godfather of the concept. But back to the colonies he proposed. We call them Island One-type colonies because the idea was picked up again by Gerard O'Neill in the mid-1970s when he was running a series of thought experiments at Stanford to speculate about space colonies. These thought experiments produced a series of designs which O'Neill thought ought to be built sequentially, with each generation laying the groundwork for construction of the next. This series was given the island designation, so the small Island 1 Bernal spheres would be the first generation. They would be followed by scaled-up Island 2 types, and then the ones we now know as O'Neill cylinders would be the third Island 3 generation. This same sequential model was adopted by Tomino for the Universal Century's backstory. I would describe to you what an Island 1 colony looks like, but if you've watched The Lost Colony Part 1, then you've already seen one, because just as the colonies that we've seen throughout Gundam are nearly perfect renderings of O'Neill cylinders, Moon Moon is a nearly perfect rendering of an Island 1 colony. And the characters in the show do repeatedly mention how much smaller this colony is than Shangri-La, and that fits too. While an Island 3 O'Neill cylinder is designed to house millions of residents, an Island 1 colony would only be able to house around 10,000 people at capacity. Moon Moon probably has significantly fewer people than that because the density looks to be extremely low. Now combine all of that with what Emery said about this shoal zone having been used to build the Sweetwater-type colonies. Per Mark Simmons again, the Ayug base called Sweetwater that appears in the Zeta novelizations is an Island 1-type colony. 
We can assume then that in this context, Sweetwater type is another way of saying Island 1, or Bernal Sphere colony. We know that the Island 3 O'Neill cylinder colonies were built in place, i.e. they were built at the sides where they are now located. They're simply too big to make moving them uh, cost-effective. And that's why the resource asteroids are there at the different sides. But it seems now that the Island 1 Sweetwater-type construction colonies were all built in a central location, and were then moved to the sides where they would be used. And that makes sense because you'd still want to have some central staging base from which to operate when building them. So that construction was done here. The debris that litters this area of space is left over from the construction of the Island Ones. Rather than clean it up, the Colony Corporation opted to just move on and leave the area full of dangerous junk. And that feels like a metaphor for the whole process of building colonies to get away from a polluted Earth teetering on the verge of total ecological collapse, instead of trying to change the social and economic structures that would be necessary to reverse the damage. It answers the question of how old Moon Moon is. The colony is at least 90 years old and probably more like 130 years old. The Back to Nature Society must post-date the abandonment of this sector, and so it is probably more like 80 or 90 years old. But all of this leaves open the questions of why Moon Moon was abandoned here, instead of being moved to another side for the next phase. Was it faulty? Did they decide they didn't need it after building it? Did some radical cult group take over an empty Sweetwater-type colony and then move it here so that they could isolate themselves? I personally think that those are interesting questions to ponder, and are not, I cannot emphasize this enough, not the kind of details that we need a manga backstory to fill in 30 years after the fact. <laughs> Even if the art is pretty. Oh, does one exist? I thought you were telling them not to make one. No, it, it exists. Oh my gosh. And now Nina's research on step pyramids. A short one this week. Uh, one of the most prominent elements in the design of the interior of Moon Moon Colony is the large step pyramid in which a lot of the action takes place. It's clearly a structure of political and spiritual significance. It's where they meet the outside delegations, where they have those delegations swear oaths of loyalty, and is the place from which their leader and prophet uh, governs, to whatever extent she actually governs. So let's back up. What is a step pyramid? Does this one appear to be modeled on any particular structure in our own world? A step pyramid is a structure composed of flat platforms, or steps, one on top of another and smaller on each subsequent level, so that it sort of resembles the form of a geometric pyramid. These structures have been found across a huge number of different time periods, civilizations, and geographic regions. Ziggurats were built across ancient Mesopotamia by the Sumerians, Babylonians, and Assyrians. The earliest of Egypt's pyramids were step pyramids. There are stepped pyramid structures in Nigeria, in Indonesia, in Sardinia, in the United States. All have similarities in their designs, but for the most part, there are no established connections between the societies that built them. I can't say that surprises me terribly. If you want to build something tall but also very stable, Stacking a series of successively smaller platforms certainly seems the most straightforward way to do that. So step pyramid, as an identifier on its own, doesn't really narrow things down. 
In the talkback, Tom brought up parallels between the Argamas' arrival at Moon Moon and the Conquistador Cortez's first meetings with Montezuma, the ruler of the Aztec Empire. In addition to these parallels, the densely forested, overgrown vegetation on and around the structure points to a tropical or subtropical jungle environment. The name of the Moon Moon god, Catl, is reminiscent of the name of an Aztec deity, Quetzalcoatl. Finally, the fact that the structure is flat-topped and with a staircase up the structure is most like step pyramids of Mesoamerica. These were built by the Aztecs, the Maya, the Toltec, and several other civilizations in the region. Narrowed down this far, we were able to make comparisons between the design of the structure in the episode and temples in our own world, finding the most likely inspirations. The shape is most similar to one of the temples in the famous Maya city Chichen Itza, and I'll share some side-by-side comparisons on our social media and Patreon page. It's the Temple of Kukulkan, also known as El Castillo, Kukulkan being a Mayan feathered serpent deity, similar to the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl. It's about 30 meters tall, or 98 feet, and consists of nine square terraces topped by a 6 meter, or 20 foot high, temple building. The structure on Moon Moon does not appear to be as tall as the Temple of Kukulkan, It's made up of fewer terraces and the staircase is narrower, and as we noted in the talkback, it's hollow, with the lowest level supported by pillars and the upper levels dotted with windows. Maya and Aztec temples were usually solid, though not necessarily solid stone. Most were filled with smaller versions of the same structure. These step pyramids and their temples would be enlarged by simply building over and around a pre-existing pyramid and the very center was sometimes full of offerings, buried in earth and then entombed in stone. Still, the resemblance is clear between the building in Moon Moon and the Temple of Kukulkan. Besides, the Temple of Kukulkan is one of the most recognized and visited pre-Columbian structures in what is now Mexico. In terms of the religious significance of these structures, I'm going to discuss both Aztec and Maya temples since the visual inspiration seems to be from one and the historical and cultural inspiration from the other. In Maya language, the word for temple means God's house, and the shrines contained within them would be to local deities or powerful ancestors. In Aztec temples, the temple house, which is to say the structure at the top of the pyramid, was often ornately carved inside, and to maintain the appropriate reverence and mystery, those spaces were kept dark. Images and relics of the gods were kept behind curtains, not unlike the light tribe's prophetess. That's good knowledge. I briefly considered delving more into Maya and Aztec religion, especially into the feathered serpent deities, Uh, but (laughs) this was a rough week, and that would have made the research much longer. Maybe next week? (laughs) It's your homework, listeners. Research feathered serpents. Next time on episode 3.13, Giants and Messiahs, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 15, and Rue has a killer back kick. Practically engaged. The gentle rhythms of the moon. Have you tried turning it off and back on again? Brutal honesty. A gentle stab. It's not betrayal if you do it for a pretty girl. And 
the mistaken desire of one who believes in power. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Soup Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Moon Moon is a bad episode of Gundam. All it has going for it is an interesting setting, fun character turns, snappy dialogue, strong, consistent themes, and important things to say about the world. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. try to be a little further from the mic okay uh so i might be quieter today but i think before i was getting like right up in it Mm -hmm. uh i'm gonna try to be back here instead yeah now you can you can get right up in it if you want to but you have to be very careful when you do that there's a whole technique oh my god go away Is both a very conscious design. Design. Subway, 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 subway. I just wanted to mention that Axis uh, is not very creative when it comes to ha- trying to hide mobile suits. It's always hidden under or behind a bunch of boxes. <laughs> it's always crates, guys. It's always crates. Anytime you see a mass of crates anywhere near Axis, like just assume there's a mobile suit in there. <laughs> a brief biological note while we're here, besides being a distinguished career at a brief biological note. Don't you mean biographical? I do. It's what <laughs> it says biographical in my note. A brief <laughs> biological note. Bernal was human as far as we know. Rue has a of a back kick. Heck of a. Sorry. <laughs> Rue has a heck of a back kick. There's just a lot of K sounds if it's heck of a. Wrong gun Although if this were a four kids dub, we wouldn't be allowed to say kill either. <laughs> but Mistress Bethany, the envelope is embossed, and the letter is called filigree. Hello, Bethany. Right, never mind. Don't want you anymore. Bye! <laughs> um. <laughs>